Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce this week's episode is my producer, Sari Suffer. Hi, Sari. I am so excited about today's discussion. We have Liz Winstead on the show to talk about the state of reproductive rights, which is scary to say the least. And the state of women in comedy in Hollywood, which is not much better. (laughs) I mean, the scary thing about women in comedy in Hollywood is that the truth is actually worse than how it appears on the surface. So we'll get to that. Uh, Most people know Liz as the creator of The Daily Show, but she's also the founder of a reproductive rights organization called Abortion Access Front. Yeah, lots to talk to her about as states around the country are passing restrictions on access Mm -hmm. to abortion. And at least 10 states have laws passed and ready to ban abortion altogether if Roe v. Wade is overturned, which the Supreme Court will confront when they hear a Mississippi case this fall. There's just so much happening at the state level right now with voting rights and restrictions on abortions. So hard to keep track. Right. But I do feel like the abortion restrictions are sort of falling off, Mm -hmm. not getting as much attention as they deserve. Um, So we'll talk to her about that. But I'm also curious if she thinks that things are better or worse than when she had her own abortion experience in the 70s and what her advice is on how we can better discuss this issue to make people understand, you know, fundamental rights are at stake. And then on the comedy side, I want to talk about what it was like to create The Daily Show in the 90s. It's amazing. It's two women who did it, Mm -hmm. you know, a time when women didn't do things like that (laughs) and why she thinks uh, writer's rooms still look just as white and male as they always have. Liz Winstead, welcome to Just Something About Her. Delightful to have you. I am thrilled to be here. Today's episode is about how everything has changed, but also nothing has changed. (laughs) With you in particular, it's interesting to have a conversation about both Hollywood, women's power, representation, influence, and then also alongside that reproductive rights, which is sort of, you know, your life story, those two things coming together. Amazing. So I know one of the things you've said was that it was a black woman at a clinic, I believe, who pushed you to said, like, you know, white women need to share their abortion mm-hmm. experiences more. Like, when yep. did you decide that you needed to speak out more about it? I think I learned when I realized that I was able to access an abortion without a whole lot of drama when I had it. I was young. Yeah, you were in high school, right? Well, I was in high school. And I ended up at a fake pregnancy center first. That part was traumatic. Oh, the ones that advertise as if come if you're in trouble. It's literally people who are not medical professionals dressed up in a lab coat. Oh. This was in 1979, and I'll never forget. I was terrified. And she said, you know, abortion's against our law. And she meant the law of her church. Right. Because abortion was legalized in 1973. Right. And so I heard against the law. So I thought it was breaking the law. And I was like, I don't know what to do. And I said, I'm, I feel really confused about what my choices are. And she said, your choices are mommy or murder. Oh my God. And I'm a teenager, right? And I accessed the abortion. And the interesting part of the abortion story is that the abortion wasn't very interesting. When I went to the clinic, there were so many caring people who just asked me, questions about what my goals and dreams and hopes were for my life. That's interesting. Do you feel like they were trained to do that? Or maybe they're just smart. (laughs) They were, you know what they were? They're totally trained to. And the thing that isn't spoken about enough is folks who provide abortion care, they 
want you to walk out of that clinic making the decision that you want. They ask you a series of questions so that you can answer them for yourself. Mm-hmm. And maybe at some point you'll say, I actually don't think I'm ready and I, to have an abortion. Maybe I do want to carry this pregnancy. Or mm-hmm. yes, you've helped me in my resolve. And so it felt really right. And it felt really non-judgy. And so for me, the talking about it meant I have heard so many people say things that they think are supportive, but maybe aren't. Like no one likes abortion or we should at least have abortion in the cases of rape and incest. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it signals to providers that the care they're giving is somehow wrong. Mm -hmm. And it signals to people who've had abortions that if they weren't abused and didn't get pregnant through that way, that somehow their abortion is up for moral judgment. Every person has a circumstance that's different. Everybody makes a choice because they're trying to figure out what's best for them. Most people who have abortions are already moms. Yeah, I think that's something that people don't understand. Yep. You never want anyone to feel shamed. And if we don't say it, how do we defend it? You know, it gives ammunition to people who are like, it's a horrible thing people have to go through. And I always say your pregnancy is yours to decide how you value it. And I would love to live in a country where if a 14-year-old girl got pregnant and was of low income and said, it is my moral belief that I want to keep this child, that we provided the opportunity for that person to raise a healthy child and to have a healthy life with it. Right. Conversely, if anybody else said, I know of things that I'm doing right now that an unattended pregnancy would not be great for me or my family or my future, that we would also equally embrace that decision as well. So that's the world I want to live in where we honor all pregnancy outcomes because we value the person who's making the decision about their capacities. I know that you've said before that, you know, you have to not feel defensive about the decision in order to not have a defensive conversation about it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I feel like, you know, I'm really not here to change somebody's mind who is going to judge me and has a specific set of beliefs around it. But I really want to have a conversation with activists and allies to understand why it's not a wedge issue, why it's actually in a very important human rights issue. Say more about what you mean about them. I think that a lot of times people can look at abortion bans and think that some of them seem okay when I hear people say, well, where can we find common ground on abortion? And I feel like there is no common ground when it comes to saying the government has some say in your body. You get to decide that as a patient. And if we look at some of the bands, like when people often ask me, gosh, we hear all these bands all the time. What's the one that you think is maybe the most horrifying? Right. And for me, it's a waiting period. And people always go, huh, that one seems like maybe a little bit like I could maybe go along with that, asking someone to think about it. And what I say is the second someone finds out they're pregnant, they think about it constantly. They think about it all the time. And if we become a society that puts into our fabric that women can't be trusted in making this decision and we have to make them wait because they don't make good decisions, that becomes a belief system that transitions way out of the abortion conversation and into, can women be trusted to run my business? Can women be trusted to get a loan to start their own business? I'm unclear that women make good decisions. We should be doing everything in our power to tamp that down right away. 
Right. Compare what's happening now and how dire it is to what like the fight for reproductive rights felt like in the 70s and 80s. One of the things that I love to bring to people who aren't like reproductive nerds, I feel like I'm a reproductive <laughs> nerd, <laughs> is we often talk about Roe v. Wade and what's happening with Roe v. Wade. Right. But back in the early 90s, there was a Supreme Court case called Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And the mm-hmm. short story on this is, this is the case that the state of Pennsylvania came forward and said, we want to be able to put limits on abortion. It was Senator Bob Casey's father. Senator Bob Casey's father. And so what the Supreme Court came back with, they said, Roe v. Wade is the law of the land, but you can create, I'm going to say barriers, but they said, yeah. you can create laws so, so somebody can't just walk into a clinic unless they create a, quote, undue burden. But they never defined undue burden. So the reason that you have all these wacky laws and that you see this happening was because of this particular Supreme Court case. Right. Now, with Trump having stacked the lower courts and having very conservative state legislatures and governors, a lot of this wacky stuff is going to go through a court system and get to the Supreme Court. So what's different about then and now is we've really moved into... People are proposing laws that are wanting literally lifetime and death penalty for providers and people accessing abortion. And people are getting elected into statewide office who have very extreme views. Also, there's a great amount of conspiracy theories around the procedure itself. There's this made up abortion reversal. The right wing is pushing that you can reverse your abortion midway through. And there's states that actually force a physician to counsel on abortion reversal. People are mandated to lie to their patients about disproven mental illness or regret or sterility, you know. And what folks might not know now is the Supreme Court did something very unprecedented. They took up a Mississippi abortion ban at 15 weeks. Roe v. Wade says the law of the land is that you can have an abortion for any reason up until 24 weeks before viability. The lower courts ruled that this 15-week ban is unconstitutional. In fact, the most conservative federal court, the Fifth Circuit, twice ruled that this was unconstitutional. The state of Mississippi wouldn't take the lower court ruling. They petitioned the court themselves and the court said they would take this law. They're going to hear the case in October. They'll rule in the spring. But we have a real case of having Roe v. Wade be overturned. And what state legislatures have done is have something called a trigger law in place, which means if Roe v. Wade gets overturned in 24 hours, abortion will be illegal in every case in states in America. So we are in a position right now that feels really dire and really scary. And again, I don't think folks know. Smart, smart. I mean, there's a lot of other garbage in our world. They just don't understand that these things didn't happen by accident, that they're orchestrated, that there's a plan behind them. It's been in the works for a very long time. It's been in the works since, you know, the 90s. In reading articles, too, just as these laws get passed in the states, the state legislatures or the governors are constantly saying, we feel emboldened. We feel empowered now because of 
the lower court system yep. and because of the Supreme Court. You know, we And they have, say it out loud, like Ava Hutchinson, the governor, yeah. Arkansas, said out loud, this is meant to challenge Roe v. Wade. Exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's like, wow, it's not trying to protect people or make sure, it, you know, no, it's just that. Okay, so that's a good place to circle back to our original question of what's changed and what hasn't. And we can bring in your other area of expertise, comedy, where I also feel like we were making progress maybe after Me Too. And yet I don't know if I've seen real change in terms of whose voice is heard and valued in the industry. So what do you think it is? Why are we still fighting for these rights? You know, it's such a great question. And it's such a big question. And for me, I think part of the fight is that for a really long time, we didn't really understand how to ask men to help us without asking them to center themselves. Right? Right. Very (laughs) good, important distinction because we need men to help. Be partners, right? Yes. They exist in the world. I love them. My my favorite man just walked in the door. Nice. My husband just came back from mowing the lawn. You know, he helps me <laughs> in partnership. Right. Yes. But say more about that distinction. Yeah. You know, when we started the fight for, we'll start with reproductive rights and then dovetail into comedy. It was and still is so often people without uteruses who seem to understand how capacity, parenthood, how the body works, what should happen and how it will benefit them to make sure they're controlling us, right? And so when we started the fight, it was like, please don't weigh in, we don't need you. And I think part of that was just gaining our own power. And now in order for us to win this fight, A, we have to really change hearts and minds when we're talking about reproductive care and abortion to refocus it back into an option that somebody might have in their reproductive lifetime about some kind of medical decision that they're gonna make. And that if we take away people's options for care that they know they need, that's everybody's problem because then that comes into not being able to help people on a path to destiny. It becomes a human rights issue. And I think that as getting men to stand behind that and understand that fulfilling relationships with everybody who could be oppressed by not being able to get the care they need doesn't serve anyone. You know, men have benefited greatly from access to birth control, access to abortion. You know, like I often say, if you're not married to the first person you had sex with, thank birth control and abortion, because that means that you made some decisions that you could like really get clear on. So I think that needs to be a reframing. And then when it comes to comedy, you know, I feel like, thank God for all of the problems we do have with social media and the internet, it was the great equalizer for women to get their power. When you look at men executives, And to a certain extent still today, who Mm -hmm. would allow agency of women to tell their stories on TV, in stand-up, in sketch comedy shows, men were like, but are guys going to think your experience is funny, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Instead of like, well, we as women have often laughed at stuff that we've never gone through that men have brought to the party because their stories were the only ones being told. Because they centered themselves in it, yeah. Yeah, and so to act like men can't hear a different experience and hear a hilarious story navigated, Mm -hmm. like, is insulting to men and insulting to women both, right? And so now that we were able to create our own path and now more women are at the table, as we all know, 
that's where you need to be in the decision-making places. We don't want to just be the dancing monkeys uh-huh. and have somebody decide what when the dance is good or bad. Uh-huh. We have to be the ones saying the dance is relevant and it's great and we're going to love it and it's amazing. But we still have a long way to go. You know, I feel like social media did help, you know, Sarah Cooper, right? You know, social media got her. There's this woman I follow, Blair Erskine. Or oh, Erskine. she's funny. Yeah. She's hilarious. If people don't know her, yep. you should look at her on Twitter. Broad City. Broad City. Fantastic web-based series. And Alana Glazer is now um, starring in uh, False Positive. Guess what it's about? Yeah. <laughs> it's about reproductive rights. And we're seeing a real boon in storytelling around birth control and abortion in a way that is normalizing it. It's just really powerful to see these stories being told because I'm such a believer that storytelling and putting a human face on issues is how we get to a place where we're like, everybody loves somebody who's had an abortion. I mean, that is just true. Because we have kept it silent for so long, Mm -hmm. we haven't had the hard conversations publicly when we talk about reproductive care and especially abortion, you know, I think we have been on the defensive and had been handed talking points from anti-abortion extremists. Yeah. Well, speaking of having those conversations publicly, after a quick break, we're going to talk about Liz's organization, Abortion Access Front, which puts these conversations about reproductive rights at the forefront and incorporates comedy, of course. I also want to discuss Britney Spears. So that's coming up on Just Something About Her with Liz Winstead. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Liz Winstead, creator of The Daily Show and a fierce reproductive rights activist who is going to tell us a little bit about her own approach to activism. You know, you started Lady Parts Justice League. Yep. I know that you have recently renamed it. I think that concern about trans women Mm -hmm. is part of the reason why. But tell me, like, why you started Lady Parts Justice League to begin with. And the evolution that it's gone through, because I, I think that sort of reflects a you know, broader evolution in the issue, too. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because in my career, my comedy has always been responding to social issues. It became very political during the first Gulf War when I realized and was watching the media. And then I started sort of this journey. You know, I created The Daily Show and launched Air America Radio. But in the course of doing those two specific things, even in progressive spaces Mm -hmm. and liberal spaces. If you wanted to talk about some outrageous thing that was happening around abortion, you couldn't. The powers that be, my bosses were almost always men. And they were like, again, oh, you know what? That's just so... Divisive. Yeah. And I was like, it's also really important. (laughs) And so when all of this stuff started happening in 2012, I had just finished my book and I had just come off Air America and I didn't know what I wanted to do next. And it was when all those laws started happening. Say more about those laws. So I think everybody remembers Wendy Davis in Texas in those Mm -hmm. sneakers filibustering. I would hate to see other families denied the right to choose what is best for them. These decisions are hard enough without placing extra limits on them. What a lot of folks I don't think realize is that 26 other states dropped that same bucket of laws, but not everybody had a Wendy Davis. So clinics started closing profoundly and quickly. And I was like, this is unreal. So I hopped in a van. I was in Minnesota with my two dogs. That's where you're from. That's where I'm from. And uh, 
I drove across country doing benefits along the way. And I did 187 benefits in a year and a half for Planned Parenthood Independent Clinics and NARAL. Mm -hmm. And they said, why are you here? Thank you for coming. No one ever comes. Mm. And it broke my heart. It really broke my heart. And when I went to Michigan, I met a state rep named Lisa Brown. They were trying to push this forced transvaginal ultrasound bill in Michigan, where if you needed an abortion, the state wanted to mandate that you had an unnecessary transvaginal ultrasound. And it's akin to state sexual assault. Yes, that was all wrapped up in a bill to ban abortion at 20 weeks, I believe. Yes. So Lisa was on the floor of the state house saying, I'm flattered that you're all so interested in my vagina, but no means no. And her speaker, Republican speaker, stood up and said, stop saying vagina. It's offensive. Use something that's more palatable, like lady parts. (laughs) I did not know this was the origin of the story. Yes. And Lisa said, are you telling me you have the right to legislate a vagina and you can't say it? And if she would have had a vibrator in her hand, she would have dropped it as a mic drop and walked (laughs) right out. But then she did. And I met Lisa and it was such an inspiring story that when I got back to New York, I gathered a bunch of creatives, writers, producers, graphic designers, editors, all my friends Mm -hmm. from the business. And so I just said, these clinics need our help. And within this movement, the one thing that doesn't exist is an advocacy organization that provides aid and comfort Mm-hmm. to the people doing the work. They're the ones fighting the laws, correcting the yeah. record, and then also just trying to stay open and provide care. We can take that off their plate. What a good concept. Yeah. People need, they need support. Yeah. And so we called the organization Lady Parts Justice, you know, and it was funny and it was good and it was a great origin story. But truth be told, for those who need care, who don't identify as women or ladies and, Mm -hmm. you know, their reproductive organs are not in any way indicative of their gender. It just felt alienating. And I was like, I heard people. I was like, that's the last thing I want to do. So I'm happy to change the name. Change it. It's an evolution, you know? It's progress, right? We can't stay in the same place and expect things to change or reject people who are willing to change, you know, which I feel like sometimes also happens. Yeah. So it's been really great. And so what we do is for those that don't Mm -hmm. know about the organization is we travel around the country. It's sort of a cross between a USO show and Habitats for Humanity for the people who are providing care. So we do big shows in cities where we have Mm -hmm. comedy and music. And then we do conversations with the providers and the activists in those local communities. And they tell the stories of what they need. And then our audience hears about it and they get to sign up right in the room to volunteer. And then we go to the clinic and we do work at the clinic because what a lot of folks don't know is if you provide care in Alabama, Oklahoma, Arkansas, you can't get a landscaper to come to your clinic because you provide abortion. You Mm, can't get someone mm -hmm. to fix your roof. Mm -hmm, So we will go in and do those things. It's so smart. It's so fun. But then we tell the story of their needs to our audience Mm-hmm. And every single time I got a landscaper who signs up and I remember this guy saying, are you saying that if I get a client and get paid, that's activism? And I was like, <laughs> yes, by you parking your van in front of that clinic, you're saying I support these people in the community and politicians listen to that. Yep. The community listens to that and you've done an amazing thing and you've made some money. You're welcome. I'm here to help everybody. Yeah, it's pretty ingenious. It's so fun. And what we're doing this fall, which I'm really excited about, is 
we're launching a talk show on YouTube called Feminist Buzzkills Live, where it's going to be kind of <laughs> a version of this weekly show where we will be talking to activists on the ground and we'll be talking to providers, but we'll have comedy and music as well and a call to action so that folks can really learn about the issue. It's just the media doesn't cover it enough. And turns out that the fear for so long was if you told your abortion story, that you would get blackballed or that you wouldn't get mm -hmm. work. Right. And now that those of us are coming forward and telling and ha ha, no blackballs, it encourages other people to do it. I mean, that similar fear of being shunned by society is, I think, what kept Britney Spears silent for so many years about her conservatorship while being forced against her will to keep an IUD in her body. I'm not able to. I mean, take a listen to this testimony she gave. Baby, I have a... Um, ID inside of myself right now so I don't get pregnant. I wanted to take the ID out so I could start trying to have another baby, but this so-called team won't let me go to the doctor to take it out because they they don't want me to have children, any more children. Isn't this insane? It is like, talk about chilling. Chilling and understanding that that could be a thing. I Yeah, I was... Was yeah. like, to me, like... Wait, she's an adult, but wait, what? And also just, you know, it was interesting because one thing that I felt really bad about is that I had a couple of people in my Twitter feed saying things like, why do we care about Britney? Why do we care about a celebrity? I was like, yeah. if that person's name was Nancy and they were from Lima, Ohio, and right. I read that story, yeah, I would be horrified and amplifying it just as hard. Yeah. You know, yeah, the fact so, that, yeah. you know, Brittany was finally allowed to tell her story and talk about her anguish and talk about her challenges mentally and everything else. And to have no one looking out for Brittany, it was heartbreaking. Yeah. Wow. And not just any woman, right? A woman who you would thought had a lot of power. And agency and had zero I just feel like at some level, like reproduction just permeates everything in culture. Not surprisingly, but we, I think we just discount what a big deal it is that women yes. have this power to give birth, that women have this responsibility, and it's something men can't ever experience. What I see is it defaulting to a lot of men wanting to control it in its absence. Yeah. In the absence of their power over it. Yeah. And I would even say like, when we look at reproduction, you know, I think it's important to talk about like we've been sort of centering women here, but like, you know, gender non-binary people can get pregnant, you know, and trans men can get pregnant. Right. And when we look at the larger landscape of what that care looks like, and especially as clinics close, I think a lot of folks don't even realize that it's a lot of these independent clinics that help provide like gender affirming care and hormone therapy and things like that. And so for rural folks, and for folks who are just low-income folks, it's really important that this big ranging healthcare that we need is available. Absolutely. All right, after one last quick break, we're going to switch gears and talk to Liz about her career in comedy and the huge influence I think she's had on the news industry. That's after the break on Just Been About Her with Liz Winstead. Welcome back to Just Been About Her with Liz Winstead. What most people don't realize about you that I feel like I am uniquely positioned to know is how much you have influenced the 
sort of entrepreneurialism in news and <laughs> how it has evolved in some of the more creative ways. Because what people don't know is that you were at the origins of both Air America and The Daily Show. And what yeah. I know, because I've worked in political communications for a million years, is, you know, without Air America, MSNBC would not exist, is my view, right? So the theory of Air America was that in the early, like late 90s, early aughts, right? Is that- it was uh, 2003. Okay, right. And I was working at the Center for American Progress at the time. And this is like a big thing. It was like, what are we going to do about right-wing radio? You know, Rush Limbaugh was ruling the airwaves. And, you know, can we create progressive radio? And it was successful-ish, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. I, I mean, mean, I think that at some level, like, Democrats aren't motivated by outrage the way that some Republicans are, right? So people will say to me all the time, why don't the Democrats do what the Republicans do? It's because we're not Republicans. And our voters, thank God, don't respond to the same kinds of outrage that Republican voters do. They respond to humor. They respond to humor, but also what Rachel Maddow, who started on Air America, right? She was my co-host. Yes, you guys had a show together. Mm-hmm. Welcome back. Unfiltered here on Air America Radio. I'm Rachel Maddow. I'm here with Liz Winstead. Again, the big news we just announced. Rachel allows humor to come in. Yes. And she uses it deftly. It does not dominate what she does. But what does dominate what she does is she goes deep into facts. Yes. Right? Yeah. Air America showed people can listen to substance, that they will find it compelling, that they will follow along if you present it well, and that you can bring humor into it. And the other thing part is The Daily Show, which so upended the way, you know, we in the Obama White House thought about communications and reaching people. Daily Show is why John Favreau and Tommy Vitor and John Levin and Dan Pfeiffer started Crooked Media is because they saw that you could do news in a different way. Uh-huh. But what people don't know is both of these things came from Liz Winstead. <laughs> I mean, it's just such a huge impact you have had. And people should be inspired by this because it's like Air America didn't seem like a huge success. But like you trusted that there was a different way to do this and you would utilize your strengths, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not try to be like the other side. I think another thing that folks don't realize is After 9-11, people didn't realize that you could still be profoundly earnest, interesting, serious, and use humor. When I left The Daily Show, Mm -hmm. I was like, we need more of these kind of shows. I don't need to sit here forever. So in trying to pitch shows like that between 2002 and 2003, you couldn't get anything done. And so I got a call from this radio guy. John Sinton is his okay. name. He mm-hmm. runs also this really cool radio network called Progressive Voices. And he's like, hey, I got your number from Al Franken. We're looking for a Liz Winstead type to launch our network. And I was like, I'm a Liz Winstead type, as it turns out. I was like, <laughs> what have you heard about Liz Winstead? Is she that terrible? Like, you don't want the actual me? And he was like, well, I didn't know if you'd want to leave TV. And I was like, I will be in any space where someone's actually going to be provocative and move the ball forward. And I don't Mm -hmm. think we use the word provocative enough because I think our side thinks it's a dangerous word, Mm -hmm. but it's not. Provocative is tapping into the realities that we often used to say, if you don't talk about them, you're giving them a platform. And I think we've made a serious mistake in Mm -hmm. saying, if all you're doing is talking about them, you're giving them a platform. If you are 
talking about them, giving a context for why they are part of the problem, and then helping people have a solution where they can do something about it, then you're being provocative and you're actually empowering everybody hearing the story to do something. Because that's the whole thing. It's like, you know, as much as I love The Daily Show, Mm -hmm. I did not want to be an anger fluffer only. I didn't just want to be somebody who was like, bringing it up. And isn't this hilarious? And aren't you mad? Go to bed now. Good night. (laughs) Yeah. I have to tell you that President Obama at times would have some concerns about, you know, the Daily Show, understanding where they were coming from and understanding, you know, like where Jon Stewart was coming from, contributing to cynicism because, you know, if it's all just a joke and there's like each side is equally bad, you know, you're like letting that seep in. Well, and what I say to my favorite President Obama is the Daily Show became powerful because the media didn't do its job. So I don't think we shouldn't be holding the Daily Show accountable for being funny. We should be holding the media accountable for the cynicism that led to the Daily Show. But how do you feel about the media now? How do you feel like it's doing now? Mm. I still feel like it's chasing the shiny objects. Do you think that's just human nature, though? Do you think there's a way around it? I think it's human nature on some level, but I think that there needs to be a way that you can talk about other stuff that's also going on in the world. Yeah. When I watch the news, and I say watch because I think most Americans watch, I think there's still a great investigative journalism going on in print media. I feel Mm -hmm. very excited about print media, but somebody needs to do a curation check so that if I sit down and I want to watch two hours of news, I can get some other big stuff that's also happening. Our earth's on fire. Yeah. Like we are literally not going to be able to live in parts of America in 50 years if we don't slow our role when it comes to climate. That's nowhere, you know? And I understand that like there's, big things happening constantly, but like, I don't need to see 17 stories. Trust me, this is my issue about these horrible Catholic bishops who want to tell Joe Biden he's not Catholic enough. Like, I'm sorry, that is utter garbage. There is no one more Catholic than Joe Biden. You know, I wish to God Joe Biden would, I could have a conversation with him about abortion. Mm -hmm. I wish I could, that would be my dream. But like, we know that story. There's nothing new happening. You know, we just need to learn, become more well-rounded as people in our information hubs. And I think, honestly, one of the things that The Daily Show and Colbert and John Oliver have done is make them think that they're supposed to be funny and have funny graphics. It's like, no, you should just be really, really great storytellers Mm -hmm. so that that makes those shows funnier. I mean, those shows are great. But the news media shouldn't become the comedy shows. Right. They should be. They should be the people who are helping break down other stories so that the comedy shows could be even funnier because you have a smarter electorate coming to then watch the response shows. I just think that cable television is so distracted and so focused on the short term that they can't do anything but what they knew worked the month before. I know. It's hard to be nimble. And that's why we... It's not hard to be nimble. It's just, they just don't do it. You know what? That's fair. (laughs) What am I talking about? My whole life is being nimble. Why are you forgiving people? (laughs) I know. Thank you. Thank you. What am I even doing? What am I even saying? 
Yeah. So thank you, Jen. I appreciate you saying, Liz, <laughs> shut up. It's not hard to be nimble. So I want to talk about, the time we have left, I do, I want to talk about women creators, women in media, women writers. Yes. So, I mean, hello, everyone. The Daily Show that, you know, people have loved for, I can't believe how long it's been around. I mean, I remember- 25 years. Yes. You know, it's important for to know that this was started by two women 25 years ago. Yes. Um, which, you know, what kind of challenges did you face? How did it come together? I had worked for John Stewart. I mean, John and I were friends did comedy. We wrote a pilot together years ago. And he had a, a short-lived talk show that was on MTV. I vaguely remember this. And so I moved into the building that Madeline Smithberg, who was the executive producer of John's MTV show. Okay. We moved into this building on the same day in New York mm-hmm. and became friends. And I had just come off doing a one-woman show about the Gulf War was a lie. It was very hilarious. And 12 people saw it. Lucky 12. Lucky 12. Lucky dozen. <laughs> and uh, she's like, hey, we're looking for a segment producer on John's show. Do you want to come and do it? And I was like, sure, why not? And I worked on it for like nine months and it got canceled. Mm-hmm. And our bosses from that show were hired at Comedy Central to run Comedy Central. And then John was immediately snatched up by David Letterman's production company. Oh. Because David Letterman wasn't threatened by John mm-hmm. and didn't want him to start a new show. So John was off the market for two years. Oh. Mm-hmm. So our old bosses brought us over to Comedy Central and said, we want to do a show that's on every day and we want it to be newsy. And I said, you know, I think that it would be interesting to actually have it be satirical. If you had the sound turned down, you would not know it wasn't local news, right? Mm-hmm. And back then, it was only CNN. Mm-hmm. There was no Fox. There was no MSNBC. And you didn't get paid a lot in cable, right? Cable was not cachet. So when we, when we launched in, we realized that not only did we need comedy people, we needed disgruntled news people. Because at the same dovetail time, let's not forget that it was like, the OJ trial and the Menendez brother. And it was just like sensationalism was like ruling the roost at cable news. Yeah, yeah. And that there was 17 news magazines on TV at the time, you know, and it was always like your mattress, what you don't know might kill you, an investigation by someone. (laughs) And so we launched in July of 1996. And then at the end of July, MSNBC launched. And then at the end of October, Fox launched. And then all of a sudden, it was this explosion of news networks who mm-hmm. didn't have anything to say. And MSNBC, hello, Ann Coulter and Laura Ingram had a show together. Yeah, Alan Keyes had a show. I mean, it was a trash heap of like bad ideas. And so The Daily Show started out with a different host, Craig Kilborn. And it also started out more like Stephen Colbert's Comedy Central show, where everybody mm-hmm. was a character. Right. Mm-hmm. I remember Samantha Bee being a character. Yeah. Yeah. And so then when John came on board after Craig left, then when you have a John Stewart, who's like a brilliant mind, right. mm-hmm. he became the voice of reason surrounded by the, you know, carnival of morons who were the correspondent. Right. That's smart. Yeah. And, you know... There was only six writers at the beginning of the show, all men. And the thing about that that was so fascinating was we had 150 submissions, two from women, okay. and, and they weren't right. Mm-hmm. But also, it was such a new 
genre. Mm -hmm. You know, people don't watch a lot of news anyway, right? And so when you try to get people who are passionate about news, hilarious, can write in the tone of a newscaster, there just wasn't a lot of folks who were like, oh, that's me. That's what I do. I know. And women just didn't have the same like, who says it's not you? We had terrible submissions from men. I feel like it's not getting any better. You know, everybody's all excited about the Queen's Gambit and Mayor of Easttown. Let me yeah. t- let me tell you something about those two shows. <laughs> Created, written, directed by men. Both of oh them. Oh, my gosh. You know, like, we're all excited. Like, women's stories are being told. I was like, oh, here's something interesting. There's this new podcast called Edith, and it's imagining that the first lady, Edith Wilson, is telling you her story. And I was like, oh, how clever. Written by two guys. Oh, my God. It's so depressing. What else needs to happen for more women to be writing in Hollywood? I think that there needs to be more women executives that understand the story and also understand that it shouldn't be acceptable to have those rooms be dominated by men. And it's not that women aren't bringing these stories forward. Women are writing amazing stuff all the time. I mean, I just finally said, I'm going to make things and put them in spaces where I land. I mean, I couldn't get a Netflix special to save my life to do my stand-up. There's plenty of men my age who have Netflix specials. I'm hilarious. So I made my own special last year. I'm just not going to sit around and wait for agency because you have to somehow get it so that then you'll have more of it. But I don't know that that's even the right answer to your question. Well, I think we can start, like, I mean, and the way we started, which is women having more platforms like social media, like, makes this possible. But I, I do think that part of the problem is, you know, just education, too. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think people know that Queen's Gambit and Mare Town was written all by men. I did not know that. Fucking shocking. Oh, my God. <laughs> so when you when they all get the Emmys, you'll see them all walk up, up on stage And like, you know, it's like, this is it, ladies. We are the generation of women who are on the earth right now who are either going to change it or Mm -hmm. it will forever be really great, talented, nice men who are telling women's stories. Yeah. I mean, and that's the whole thing. Put it out there any way you can. Yeah. Also, you're responsible for your own relevance. And that's the whole thing. Never let anyone tell you that you're too old, you're too this, you're too that, and none of it. Like, that'd be damned. Um, fantastic. Thank you so much. This was so great. Sari? Yep. She's amazing. Lighthearted <laughs> on top topic that is very not lighthearted. Um, yeah. I did want to, before we get into our analysis, kind of just add some nerd out reproductive rights information. Please do. Because she mentioned a few things that I want to clarify. So she mentioned trigger laws. Mm-hmm. There are 10 states that have trigger laws in place ready to ban abortion altogether if Roe v. Wade is overturned. She also mentioned states that require inaccurate information on reversing medication abortion, Mm -hmm. which that is not a thing. That is nuts. Yeah. And then she was talking about when she started Lady Parts Justice League, now Abortion Mm -hmm. Access Front, um, it was surrounding all of those abortion restrictions that were enacted Mm -hmm. around the year 2012. I just wanted to go through how that actually panned out because actually starting in 2011, where 92 abortion restrictions were enacted, that was a record. And then in 2012, Mm -hmm. 43 additional restrictions were enacted in 19 states. And then in 2013, which is the Wendy Davis year, Mm -hmm. 22 states enacted 
70 abortion restrictions. So it was kind of like an escalation of all of these abortion restrictions being enacted in states around the country. That is, I think, as she mentions, when women started really waking up to the fact that, oh, things are getting worse. <laughs> and all of that information I got from the Guttmacher Institute, which I just want to say for anyone interested in this is an awesome resource to show you just how dire the situation is because they really track it on like a day-by-day basis and things really are changing day-by-day. What you see is a very orchestrated, coordinated, long-term effort to restrict rights of women and people of color, the people who have um, historically not been empowered in the United States. And, you know, as we're recording this today, the day after the Democrats in the Texas state legislature have abandoned their state in an effort to ward off the voting rights legislation. But like this is not a drill, mm-hmm. you know, trying to undermine, take away, diminish our rights. My favorite thing that she said was how this extends to other areas of life as well. So, like, yes. you know, a lot of these states are enacting waiting periods. And she was saying that the underlying insinuation there is that women can't be trusted to make their own decisions. Like they need time to wait to think about it. And if that's what we're basing um, these waiting periods on, then we're insinuating that women can't be trusted to make other big decisions in life, like decisions that would be required to run a company, decisions that would be required to run a household. So I think that was just like, we don't think about what's behind all of these assumptions and messaging. I mean, it. Hard to not see the reproductive rights fight as sort of an epic battle of power. It does feel pretty existential and also almost primal, you know. And I think it's part of the existential fight that we're having right now, which is like severe polarization. Like Mm -hmm. everyone's in their information bubbles, which she mentioned conspiracy theories are kind of running rampant now in all areas of politics, all areas of culture. And this is one of those, like, you know, I think of all of these heartbeat bills where these states are enacting bans on abortion once a fetal heartbeat can be detected as if that is a viable fetus. It is very much not a viable fetus at that early stage of pregnancy. So I think that because we're all in our information hubs, these issues just get compounded. Mm -hmm. And then one more thing I wanted to ask you, you know, just so Mm -hmm. people can have like a kind of a good takeaway in how they can be part of the fight. I mean, you can obviously go on Abortion Access Front's website and there's a lot of ways to donate to Liz's cause and everything. But just in terms of putting pressure on politicians, like having been on the inside, what do you think has been the most successful way to put pressure on politicians to fight for reproductive rights? For them to hear directly from women. You know, Mm -hmm. in 2012, when President Obama was being reelected, there was no leader, no group outside of our actual campaign that was more important to our success than Cecile Richards and Planned Parenthood. And women speaking up just made a big difference. Are you saying that Cecile like galvanized women to vote for Obama because she was saying that he would be supportive to their reproductive rights and their reproductive planning? Using the 2012 example, women cared enough to get involved and make their voices heard on this particular issue. And that had a huge impact in getting Barack Obama reelected and getting you know, in a tough year, getting Democrats elected to Congress that otherwise would not have happened. I guess what you can do as an individual is express to the politician that this is the existential issue that you know it to be. And when they feel that kind of, not just pressure, but they feel that kind of urgency, right? That's what makes a difference. That it's a human rights issue, not a wedge issue. Mm-hmm. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Liz Winstead for being on the show. 
If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castor-Russell is our executive producer. <laughs>